Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode number 167. My guest in this episode is Dr. Ariella Marshall. And Ariella is an associate professor of medicine and hematology at Mayo Clinic. And she joins us to discuss a really important and provocative subject, and that is around the issue of physician infertility. Ariella, along with two great friends of Explore the Space, Dr. Arga Vonsalas and Dr. Vinny Aurora, co authored a recent paper on this subject. They laid out the problem, the drivers of it. The just the the, the 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 complexity, the emotion. They did a really nice job in this paper, and Ariella comes on to sort of lay this out. And for me, this was a great opportunity because conversations around infertility, specifically related to physicians, was not part of any aspect of my training. It was not something that really comes up much. And we talk about why that is. And we talk about what are the barriers around discussing this issue that affects, and I was blown away by this, one out of every four female physicians. That is a staggering number. And it's important that this dialogue continues. It was wonderful to speak with Ariella and to read this paper and to be part of clearly a growing discussion around a subject that is of vital importance it's a great conversation. It's an impactful conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Before we get to the show, I do want to invite you to please check out the website for Explore the Space. As always, www.explorethespaceshow.com. The whole archive is there. Subject matter like gender equity and climate change and gender bias and leadership and you name it, we have covered it with extraordinary guests and the, and the episodes are evergreen. So please do take a listen. If you enjoy listening to podcasts, you can find Explore the Space wherever you download your podcast. Please do subscribe and definitely leave us a rating and a review. That really helps the show out. There is no better way to help this show continue to grow than by spreading by word of mouth. If you've got friends and colleagues that you think may enjoy this episode or another episode you've heard, please do let them know. Again, it really helps us out and I really appreciate it. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on social media, on Twitter at ETS show, Instagram at explore the space show. I'm very active on those platforms. Love to hear from people, love to interact. It's a total blast to do so and I really enjoy it. Conversations like this are a huge part of why Explore the Space exists. I am so proud that this conversation could happen. It was a a treat to speak with Ariella, and I really admire the courage that she and Argavon and Vinny displayed in putting this paper together and putting it forward. It's It's an important conversation. I look forward to hearing what you think of it as well. Without further ado, Dr. Ariella Marshall. Ariella, welcome to Explore the Space. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's interesting how the worlds of academic medical publications and social media intersect from time to time. People write articles and they share them on social media. We may or may not be able to read them depending on firewalls or depending on interest level. You wrote a paper and you co-wrote it with a couple of other physicians who you and I obviously see and interact with on social media a lot. 
And it was a, a, a paper that was titled Physician Fertility, A Call to Action. When you yeah. wrote the paper, first of all, let's just talk about it from the perspective of writing a paper with that subject line and that subject matter and having it be published in a journal called Academic Medicine. What sort of response were you anticipating and what sort of response did you get? Sure. So, you know, the the first thing I'll say is it's funny you brought this up in the context of social media, because that's actually how I met my co-authors on this paper. We had not actually met in person and did not know each other at the point when we that came together and started to write the paper. It was actually because of social media when somebody had tweeted about fertility and physicians and how this was kind of a little known but really a a big problem that we needed to increase awareness about and you know i think one of us picked up on that and responded to the others and like oh we should really you know get together and write something about this and that's how we actually met um, was on social media and so then the three of us you know kind of put our heads together brainstormed and said well you know, physician fertility and infertility is a big deal. You know, one in four female physicians actually struggle with infertility. And yet it's not really something that's acknowledged or maybe not really something that many of us, you know, even as female physicians are actually aware of. So we thought, you know, hey, how can we write this piece in such a way that it draws awareness to the subject, but is also kind of academic in the way that we go about pursuing it. Because again, kind of in medicine, in the world that we live in, publishing in an academic journal is almost a way of saying, hey, this is a legitimate topic. This is really something that needs to get out there. This is something that needs more study. And so doing that kind of in an academic sense and publishing it in an academic journal is the way that we could best think to draw awareness and advocacy to the topic, but in a way that would be open um, to academic physicians as well as kind of the general population. So, so you're, you're gathering that sort of gravitas that the, the academic sphere would lend to a topic that what I'm hearing you say, and, and I would agree, zero conversation. I mean, I think it's safe to say like zero discussion. Exactly, exactly. You know, and it's only been, I would say, you know, the past maybe two or three years that the topic of physician fertility has been really brought up at all. And so we really wanted to say, hey, let's bring this topic into kind of the general conversation. Let's get people talking about it. And, you know, if we can do that, we can also advocate for support, for change, for coverage, you know, in terms of time and in terms of, you know, one day potentially insurance coverage for all of these people, all of these women, all of these families, um, who are going through this experience. I like the way you frame this as this is a foothold to do a lot more work. Oftentimes it feels like people get something published in a journal and it goes on the CV and disappears into PubMed hell and that's it. It feels like, and this article certainly read like something very different. Exactly. And that was, you know, it came about not from I did a research project and want to write about it and get it published, but it came about instead from, hey, 
this is something that we've all personally experienced. It's a really important topic, but there's just nothing out there about it. So we really need to get something out there. So it's kind of a passion project, I would say, rather than a research project. And that's, you know, what brought us together um, in the first place to start writing on this topic. Uh, I'll tell you that it, it impacted at least one person significantly, and that's me. And I'll tell you why. Uh, when I was in medical school and in residency, the subject matter of physician fertility was never mentioned, ever. It did not come up. We had lectures on fertility and reproduction, of course. We learned all about it. We, we rotated through the clinics. We did all of that. But how it may or may not apply to female physicians or male physicians in whatever manner either would choose to start a family and the implications of it never came up. It was not, it just wasn't discussed. Quite frankly, I don't remember the students and the residents ever discussing it amongst themselves. But I also can say, and I can't give a lot of details because I don't have their permission, I have at least two close friends who had issues with infertility. And it was a huge problem. It was a huge issue. And they were unsupported by their institutions. Yeah, you know, it's, again, it's something that maybe academically you hear a little bit about fertility. Maybe somebody puts up a graph that shows that female fertility starts to decline somewhere around age 35. But in terms of actually making it personal, we just don't have a good you know, way of doing that right now for our medical students and residents. And that's the time when you need to be thinking about it. So nobody's actually putting up a graph that says, well, hey, here's when fertility starts to decline. And hey, that's about crossing the axis where you're actually finishing your training and maybe starting to think about having a family. Um, but no one's actually kind of put that together and said it's important to think about before you get to the point where it becomes an issue. When I read the article as well, I, I was thinking about my friends and I was thinking about, man, this is a real gap. And then I was, as I read through, I remember I read through the abstract the first time and there's a sentence in it that was really striking for me because it's, it's way down there and it's, it's one of those terms in journalism of called, called burying the lead. The authors who have experienced and sought treatment for infertility bring attention to the challenges around both physician infertility and preservation of fertility. This happened to the three of you, and you shared it. Exactly. And we did feel um, that it was important to put out there that this is something we've personally struggled with because, again, you know, it's going into an academic journal, but we don't want to make it such an academic sounding topic that it's like, here's a lecture on fertility. We want to say, hey, this is something that we have personal experience with, and we want others to be able to learn from our experiences. You lay the you lay the call to action out nicely in the article, and we'll have the article in our show notes. And so I want to spend a little bit more time not recapitulating what's in the article specifically. I would like, though, to get to where you've been through what I can only imagine is challenges, stressors, emotions that are that are a real test. Was there any sort of catharsis or closure or wh where does writing an article for someone who's been through this where does that bring you? Where does that leave you once the article's out there and you start getting responses? 
Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing has really been the number of people who have started sharing their stories after seeing this article. So for, for me, it's really, you know, getting this out there that, hey, we know based on statistics that one in four female physicians experience infertility, but nobody's talking about it. And so this article was really, for me, a way to get people talking about it. And the stories that have come out on social media, you know, some of them just heartbreaking um, about people who have gone through this journey or going through this journey, the lack of support, they have the isolation that they feel. And so I think for us, you know, in addition to kind of the advocacy push that we have for support from institutions, UME, GME, insurance, it's, it's also about just breaking that isolation barrier and having people say, hey, this is happening to a lot of people. Let's talk about it and, and making people feel less isolated. For me, that was really you know, a very positive thing that came out of this article. Why do you think it's like this? Why do you think it is, I mean, one in four, 25%, if there were, if 25% of female physicians were getting in car accidents, something would be done, something would be changed, right? If 25% of American female physicians were having basically anything happen to them, one would expect that some sort of action would be taken and that there'd be some dia- at least some dialogue around it. Why do you think, and I can speculate upon the answers, but I want your insight, why is there this culture of silence around it? I think, in my mind, one of the best analogies I've come up with is infertility as mental illness. You know, there's a lot of stigma around it from a societal perspective, and I think that's true for physicians as well as anybody in the general population. You know, that stigma is not limited to physicians, certainly, but for for all women, for all people who are struggling with infertility, there's a lot of stigma about it. And so nobody wants to bring it up unless somebody else starts off the conversation and then they can jump in and say, oh, yes, this is this has also happened to me. So unlike kind of a car accident, um, which you described, you know, and that's clearly kind of, oh, that's so unfortunate, you know, but there's no stigma attached to it. So this, I would say, is very similar to, you know, we know the statistics of one in five Americans suffer from, you know, a mental illness, but nobody's talking about it, or at least the vast majority of people are not talking about it. So I think there is a lot of stigma. Um, And it, you know, it always reminds me of this, people have told me, oh, wow, you're so brave for talking about this in a public forum. And that word brave really conveyed to me, you know, people wouldn't use that word unless there's a stigma attached to talking about it. So I really think it's kind of the societal stigma about infertility that prevents people from talking about it. Um, The reason that it happens in female physicians at almost twice the rate of the general population, you know, again, there's a lot of speculation. One of the reasons is probably that many of us don't start trying to have families until after our training is complete. And naturally, that's somewhere kind of in your, anywhere from your early to even your late 30s um, on, on average. And so certainly age is one thing. Hours work, you know, still even after training, working 60 plus hours a week, overnight shifts unpredictable hours, stress of the job. Those are kind of a lot of the things that people have have postulated contribute. Um, But in terms of 
talking about it, I do think that there's a lot of stigma still attached to this area. So then as part of that call to action, you know, we think about how do you break through it? It's going to take a, a multifaceted, multi-pronged, sustained approach to, to move the needle. But for you, as someone who has written about it, and so you're now positioned as someone who has some expertise, not just because you've written about it, but also because you've gone through this. What's the low-hanging fruit? What would you like to see by the end of 2020 be normal? So I think just talking about it in medical school, you know, is a great place to start, right? It's we're certainly not advocating for, oh, all female medical students should go out and freeze their eggs. That's absolutely not what we're trying to do. But just to mention, you know, it's it's just like you tell people about any type of preventive care, right? You know, oh, you should sleep right. You should eat right. You should exercise. You know, that prevents cardiovascular disease and improves overall health. Well, if we're talking about fertility health, and we're talking about a bunch of female medical students who are coming into medical school in their 20s when fertility is generally quite good, you know, just talking about, hey, this happens, here are the statistics, and as you know, egg freezing may be an option. Um, Just to provide people with that information, you know, again, it's not a directive at all, it's not saying you should do something, but just giving people a little more information, putting it in their minds, not just the lecture on fertility, but saying, hey, this is a risk for you as a physician. Do you know of any medical schools or residency programs where in their lecture series, the the professor or the attending or whoever is giving the talk to the medical students or the residents where that's baked in, that this is an issue, and that also not only is it an issue one out of four, but here's the infrastructure that our organization has to support you. You know, I actually do not know of any medical schools that do this. Um, Certainly. um, It's kind of an indictment of where we are. That's not good. Yeah. And, you know, the information is there. And I think that's a great start, as you call it, the low hanging fruit. The problem is unless you have the support system to go along with it. You know, I, I will tell you from. You know, the the egg freezing process is very similar to the stimulation process I went through to get eggs to then make embryos for IVF. And it's a very time intensive process. It's a very financially intensive process. And so unless you're going to then provide the resources in terms of time out of class, time out of rotations, financial support, it's really hard to to give all that information. I think it's still important to give, but I think the next step really needs to be like, okay, and now what are we going to do about actually providing the support that people need to do something? But I think that there's an organizational imperative to do that because not only does it sound and feel and look like the right thing to do, medical school class demographics, half of them or more are women. So how can, how can you not be pragmatic and and start to create these things and no one expects them to be done overnight but one would hope that these things are are cooking uh, and that they're that they're actually in process because on the flip side I'd like to envision right if if my medical school gave that had that baked into the curriculum for first year medical students or or part of orientation or my residency program same thing and here's the here's the information and hey if you want to reach out this is the this is the email or this is the phone number to call 
what a powerful tool that would be. The word would get out and people would seek that program out as saying, this is a place that recognizes me as a human being who may or may not have needs as time goes by. And this is going to be a big one. And they're ready for that. Hey, I absolutely agree. You know, I think we can also think about it in the systemic sense that if people are doing this and preventing future infertility issues, think about the magnitude of impact on the physician workforce. One in four female physicians in the future, if they're seeking treatment for infertility, but in many of them, if it could have been prevented, you know, at a younger age, think about that impact as well. So I think there's, there's so many things that could be done, but unfortunately right now in terms of fertility, childbearing, parental health, I think we still have a very long way to go. You know, there's a study that came out just last year looking at kind of top tier medical schools and associated with academic medical centers. And even for parental leave, which is a very basic, you know, part or should be a very basic part of healthcare in general, parental leave didn't meet kind of minimum requirements recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics in many of those top tier centers. Um, And so that's a, if that's a very basic thing, and we can't even do that, you know, I think we have a long way to go in fertility awareness. Another place that uh, your insights, I think, are really important because we also want this to feel inclusive and we don't want women to feel like they're on their own or men who may be in a relationship where infertility is an issue and they are working with their partner or anyone else in, in terms of how they choose to start a family where infertility becomes an issue. What What are the things where you would like to see men engaging around this, learning about this and talking about it? I think there's several ways that men can and should be involved. You know, first, of course, is you know, not all couples are male-female couples, right? Yeah. You know, there may be female-female couples. There may be male-male couples who are interested in donor eggs, interested in adoption. So we got to kind of keep our minds open in that sense that fertility, Absolutely. you know, really impacts everybody, though there's certainly male causes of infertility as well. Um, so a male who is, you know, coupled with a female and the couple suffers from infertility, it could be a male factor, it could be a female factor, it could be either. So, you know, the statistics have really only been reported in female physicians. But Oh, I'm I noticed sure. that. Absolutely. I was like, you know, the one yeah, in four. Well, yeah. there are men who have infertility issues, too. Exactly, exactly. So that's certainly something that merits a lot of further study. Yeah. And then also, you know, if it is a female physician who has a male partner and the female physician is struggling with infertility, that certainly affects the couple, not just the female physician. And I think, you know, the struggle is almost as hard, you know, if not in some senses harder for the male because you know, just from personal experience, you know, at least I'm doing something, I'm taking injections, I'm going for ultrasounds, I'm going for lab tests, you know, your partner is just kind of stuck there at the mercy of results of all of this and can't even really be doing anything active. And it really takes an emotional toll on every member of the family. I think that that's probably again, just to get back to that term of the low hanging fruit. I think that your, your statements around this being inclusive and recognizing that 
while one person may be doing a lot of different things, a lot of actions to be taken, that there is pain and stress and anxiety for the other person and making sure that it's, that it's recognized from that societal level in terms of stigma. But when the, when the institution is also working to support this, to make sure that it's baked in like, Hey, how's your partner doing? And do they need some support? Because otherwise they're going to, they may even feel, I guess, could even be more isolated. Absolutely. You know, we certainly need to provide support for everybody going through this process. You know, there's, there's actually some online support groups um, for female physicians going through this. I don't know of any for male either physicians or otherwise um, who are (laughs) either going through this or watching their partner go through this. And that's certainly something that, you know, we need to, to take a closer look at as well. I agree with you a hundred percent. I don't have much else to say on that. There's, it's rare that there's a topic where I'm like, yeah, we're, you covered it. That's it. But that that's true. It needs to be, it needs to be kind of done that way. But it's interesting that you mentioned those sort of online support groups, because one of the things that really helped me feel like this is something where I want to connect with you as, as a subject matter expert on many levels, a friend of ours from social media, uh, Narjas Duma put out a tweet recently where it's a picture of her arm and she's got the bandage on from getting an injection and she reflected that she's in the midst of this process she was very kind she tagged me on it and when you speak about inclusivity i thought that that was i was really moved by that that she thought that hey i want mark on this on this message and i that was i thought that was very moving and i was really touched by it but that tweet for again whatever standards things go viral like it got a lot of traction at least and what you've described, that storytelling, it was it was unbelievable. People in that, you know, 280 characters, that's all you get, are just sharing these absolutely crushing things that have happened. Yeah, it's, it's very sobering, you know, on the one hand to hear about all these stories. And I'm sure, although I don't know for for a fact, but I'm, I'm quite sure that for many people, this was the first time they had ever shared this type of story. I got that impression too. Um, I definitely had that same impression. It's just, it speaks, I think, to how alone a lot of people feel when they're going through this process that, you know, people talking about doing injections and ultrasounds, you know, getting them in somehow before clinic or going to do procedures or even doing their embryo transfer and then going right back to a full clinic or some of the worst stories, people who had suffered through miscarriages and then went right back to clinic or doing their procedures, you know, because they felt guilt about taking time off. And I, you know, again, I think there's such a huge stigma that nobody's really talking about. Nobody's really told their colleagues or their chair that they're going through this process. And, you know, again, there's a lot of guilt that we as physicians always put on taking any time off, but this specifically, I think, engenders a lot of guilt and the feeling that, oh, I need to keep doing everything that I usually do no matter what. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, again, we need to really change the conversation around this to normalize the process and to make it okay to say, hey, listen, you know, I'm going through a hard time medically and emotionally and you know, really need to take that time to recover. Um, but I think that the good thing that came out of this is really once people start sharing their stories, it does break that isolation barrier. It does 
show people that, hey, there's so many people that have been this, have been through this. Um, you know, I, I will share that after that, a mentor that I worked with for years reached out to me and said, oh, you know, I, I went through IVF as well. And all of that time that I had had worked with this person, I never knew that. Um, so I think that breaking down the barriers, normalizing the conversation is really a first step towards taking that isolation away. It's, it's kind of funny that the this article came out. It's almost a year ago that Argovan's article in Time Magazine came out. There's obviously at least the beginnings of some conversation around this on Twitter, uh, and I would imagine there may be more. Do you feel like the needle is moving? Like, do you feel like in your own, you know, clinical microclimate, your own circle of friends, your, you know, your buddies from medical school and residency, is there more narrative around this or not yet? I think we're just starting to see yeah, it. You know, I yeah. think the, the online conversations are good. They're a great place to start. I think what happens here is that many of us who have been through the process will start talking about it. What I really think the conversation needs to move to is getting people who haven't been through the process yeah. involved. Yeah. Because I, I can tell you, you know, even speaking to women, but women who have not been through the process, there is a general kind of, and, and of course, you know, very understandably, a lack of understanding of what the process entails of the fact that, yes, there are multiple daily injections, there's daily blood pressure, there's daily ultrasounds, you may get called for a procedure the next day without being able to plan for that. And so I think that even the most well-intentioned people that don't exactly understand what this process entails really need to be brought into the conversation. Um, you know, again, I think those of us who have been through it, talking about it is a great first step in breaking down those isolation barriers, but we need to bring everybody into the conversation to really normalize this and really make some change in how we address it as a medical community. Can I add one more? Absolutely. I want you to become a division chief and then a department <laughs> head and then run an organization. And I want Vinny to do it and I want Argavon to do it and I want lots and lots and lots more women to do that because from the pragmatic perspective, it needs to be a cohort of people who are at the head of the table, who are running the meeting, who are setting the agenda, who are more importantly, setting the strategic vision and the mission for what is happening in a department, in an organization, in an institution to actually get process, protocol and policy on paper. Absolutely. And again, it does take those conversations, you know, Someone who wants to be a good leader in this has to understand what's involved. Yeah. And so I think those conversations between people who've been through the process and those who are making the policy are where, you know, the heart of change lies. What is the level of enthusiasm, do you think, for people who are rising in leadership to put this on the forefront of strategic planning? I think it depends on the individual. There's obviously a lot of pressures at the divisional level, at the department level, at the organizational level. Um, but I think this 
needs to be, you know, maybe not at the very top, but certainly needs to be a priority. Um, because again, you know, just looking around my own department, there are people who have been through this, but didn't have the support to do it. Um, and, you know, again, one in four, there's people everywhere going through this. So it does need to be a priority. I think you know, right now there is a lot of emerging awareness, particularly around parental leave. There have been a lot of recent studies published in this area and a lot of policy changes. So I think if this can be kind of added on to that as a whole, you know, parental health doesn't just mean those who are pregnant and gave birth. It means, you know, the part of it involved in actually becoming a parent and overcoming these fertility barriers as well. So I think, you know, as part of the emerging parental health movement, I think there is an appetite to make uh, to make some changes here. And I'm working on, um, I'm leading a study right now, actually looking at our trainees and their interests kind of in changes in parental health policy. And one of the things that we asked, and I think the first time that this has ever been asked in, in a survey-based study is interest in support for infertility. And, you know, I can't give you the exact numbers. We haven't published it yet, but, uh, you know, a large number of our medical trainees, both male and female, were interested in policies that support those going through infertility treatment. These all sound like the right levers to pull. One of the other things that I will say I think is laudable is that not you wrote this article, it, it went into a journal where you and I both know, unless people are actively sharing it, it it's not on newsstands, it's not going to be you know headline news, it's not going to have a lot of crossover appeal, it's not going to get that traction, but you've been courageous enough to bring it forward into social media, to come on a podcast. I do think that that is really important, that this stuff, in terms of breaking down stigma and shining a light in dark places, it's got to be forward-facing. And that takes a lot of courage. And so I, I, I appreciate and applaud that. Thank you so much. And I totally agree that, you know, when we wrote for an academic journal, we wanted to make sure that it's getting to that academic audience, but to really bring things to the attention of the majority of people it needs to be done on a larger stage and so I'm happy to actually talk about my experiences on social media and in that kind of larger stage setting because again the only way that we can break down these barriers that we can decrease the stigma associated with infertility is to actually talk about it so here's a question and I will give you I'm going to give you a um, I'm going to give you a, a pass card I it's a well done article it's it's written very thoughtfully, carefully, and professionally. Which journals rejected it? <laughs> so I, we actually did try to send it to uh, to New England Journal of Medicine kind yeah. of for their commentaries area, yeah. um, but but got a no on that. Yeah, not surprisingly, right? I'm sure they get a million submissions a I day. I don't agree with um, you. Uh, that that's a, that I don't agree with you. I, I think that's uh, uh, that makes me sad. That's really frustrating. That's. I don't know. It just shows lack of vision, right? This was a, this was a smart paper written by really accomplished, thoughtful, intelligent, and well-known physicians. And I just think that shows a lack of editorial vision and it's irritating. It's really frustrating. Fair enough. Well, maybe you can send them a recording of this podcast <laughs> after we're done. Sure. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, right. Because 
uh, it, it, why wouldn't they want this, right? If you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about it from an editorial perspective, and if you're thinking, look, we need things that are going to drive clicks and are going to drive website hits and are going to drive conversation and follow up, you got to be smarter than that. You got to say like, this is, this is the core of the people who are going to be our subscribers and our followers for, for the next two generations, right? These are the women who are early in their career. Why wouldn't you want this story and take the lead on it? And I think this gets to a totally different subject, but it's something that we have touched on on the podcast is what are our journals doing? And, you know, places like the Lancet really are taking the lead on really important topics like gender equity and climate change and making those real clear points of emphasis and journals that aren't doing that. I don't have a whole lot of time for it anymore because this is the stuff I want to read and learn about. I can get the science. I can learn the didactics. This is what I want to know about. And this is my expectation now. Sure. And I certainly appreciate that. Um, You know, I think, of course, all journals have different priorities. But with the incoming generation, especially, I, I think that there is much more of a focus on overall physician wellness, health, you know, societal health, breaking down barriers about things that are you know, have been stigmatized, such as mental illness, such as infertility. So I think there is a growing appetite for for these types of articles out there. Um, and I would hope that over the next few years, more and more academic journals um, will see the importance of that. I agree. And, and I think clearly there's an appetite for it in the public sphere, right? Time Magazine published Argavon's story a year ago. And Time Magazine's huge, right? That's one of the biggest publications in the world. So there's clearly interest in this. And I think you are really smart to be thinking about how do we continue to build this and to make progress as opposed to it just being that one-off, okay, we've told our story. Now we got to get back to other business that this is going to take some sustained effort. Absolutely. And I think this should really drive people's kind of ambitions going forward you know I know for me after going through this experience and starting to write this article that's what drove me to actually write for this small grant to do our parental health study where we're looking at you know interest for infertility coverage among medical trainees and I think that you know it's it's really important to let experience kind of drive some of our passion projects in the future. I think that's great fuel I I think it really is and and I'm really appreciative that you came on, explored the space to talk about this. I think it's wonderful that you wrote that article with Argavon and Vinny, and hopefully there's real progress because I think that we need to, this is something that we need to get better at. And I will also say that I think that your approach of inclusivity is really great because everyone, everyone in our profession has experienced this in one way or another, whether it was on a personal level or someone that they know or experienced the dearth of any sort of conversation around it and has to deal with the ramifications of that. So for all of those things, I'm really, really grateful to you. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd just just like to end with, if there are those out there who are feeling isolated going through this journey, I'm personally happy to talk to anyone um, who wants to, to chat um, and there's some great support groups out there as well so you're not alone that's really great of you to say and we'll have the ways people can reach you certainly in the show notes and links to those support groups as well will be in the show notes how do people find you on social media if they want to follow you and follow the work you're doing 
Yeah, so Twitter, um, we can provide the handle, but a Marshall MD, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So reach out to me any point. That's really great. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.